Well, there's a chance we can finish the study tonight, but I have to tell you, it's real slim. (laughs) I don't think we're going to do it. We still have too many things to go over, but we're nearing the end, I can tell you that. Hope you had a nice day yesterday and the day before. It's good to see you out tonight. We're going to continue on in our study of the doctrine of hell, and we're talking about the place called purgatory, and we spent last time going through the text in Second Maccabees that is used as a proof text for proving or supposedly proving the existence of purgatory, which it does not do at all, and we went over that completely. Now we want to get to the biblical passages that they allude to to say that teaches purgatory. And before we begin this study tonight, let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word and your precious people. And we thank you for those who've come out tonight, Lord, to study this important doctrine. It is important doctrine. Eternity is no light issue. It's serious. And I pray, Lord, that people would realize that reality, that we make a decision to trust the Lord, or we leave this world and we go into a place of eternal fire. And I pray they would come to understand that and trust the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are three passages of Scripture that are alluded to by those who say there's such a thing as purgatory. And the first one I want you to go to tonight is Matthew 5.26. And from this verse, it has been concluded that this is a reference to purgatory. It literally launches the verse out of its context, which we'll show you tonight. But you'll notice what verse 26 says, Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. Now, the Catholic Church uses that verse to say, you see, you can get into a place and you have a chance to actually pay your way out of it. Of course, what they'll tell people is, who are alive, that you can pay and get the person out of there, which is not what the text says. The text doesn't say that other people can contribute and get the person out of there. It says the person who's there is not going to get out until they've paid the last cent. And that's what it says, the person there. Not people that are left behind in some religious organization. They're not the ones holding these special services and making contributions and lighting candles to get that out. The person is responsible and accountable. Now, I want to take a few minutes just to establish the context of this so you see the full weight of actually what's being said here. Now, the text of Matthew chapter 5 to 7 has been called the Sermon on the Mount, in which the Lord Jesus Christ is presenting himself as King of Israel, and he's basically establishing the kind of righteousness that Israelis would have to have to get into the kingdom. They don't have it. They thought they had it. They didn't have it. So what he does in chapters 5 through 7 is he lays out in this book of Matthew a series of discussions and illustrations that show the kind of righteousness that a Jewish person would have to have to get into the kingdom of God. What they should have said when he got done with this is, well, none of us can do this, which is exactly what they should have come to that conclusion and conviction and said, well, none of us can meet this standard. And he just said, that's right. That's why I'm here. Now, to show you the context of all of this, I want to draw your attention to verse 17 of chapter 5, 
And I want you to notice the personal pronoun that the Lord Jesus uses concerning himself. He says in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Christ is using the first person pronoun to say, that's why I'm here. I'm here to fulfill everything in the law, and then we'll learn in Colossians, he's going to nail that to the cross. So to get this kind of righteousness, which fulfills every nuance of the law, you have to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the fulfillment of it. Now, in verse 18, he says, for truly I say to you, this is again the Lord Jesus, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So what he's basically saying here, or laying a groundwork for, or framework for, is the smallest detail of the law has to be fulfilled if you're going to escape eternal fire. And it'll bring up fiery hell in the context. So what he's basically saying is, I have come to fulfill everything in the law, and nothing of that law is going to be lacking, right down to the smallest little law that you think is insignificant. There's not going to be one thing in there that will be lacking from that. Now, he says in verse 20, flowing into this verse, the verse that they're alluding to, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So he is basically saying the righteousness that you need to escape fire, the eternal fire of hell, which he mentions in verse 22, the righteousness you need to escape fiery hell and the righteousness you need to enter the kingdom has to surpass all the religious traditions and religious actions of righteousness that is established by those scribes and Pharisees. I mean, they had rules and laws and codes and regulations, and they said you had to follow this, and you had to do this. They told you how far you could walk on their Sabbath day. I mean, they had broken this stuff down. And he said, you have to have a righteousness that's way beyond what they're telling you. Now, he comes to use two illustrations that would have been enough illustrations to prove that they're guilty, that they don't have the righteousness necessary to get into the kingdom. And the first illustration is the illustration of anger. And if you are angry, you break the law and equates that to murder. And the second illustration that he uses is that of adultery. And you commit adultery by looking at something lustful. So he's going to say, if you're angry with the brother, you are actually involved in murder, which they would be involved in the murder and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And if you have looked at someone lustfully, you're guilty of adultery. You commit adultery. And that's why we have always promoted this starting a year ago, December, I think it was. Set no unclean thing before your eyes. Why do we do that? Just for something to do? No, because if you do that, you're committing adultery. I mean, if you're setting unclean things before your eyes, lustful things before your eyes, it's a classification of adultery, and you don't want that. You don't want that on your record when you get before the Lord, so you need to make a break from that stuff and say, you know what, by the grace of God, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be involved in that. Now, the thing that's overlooked by the Catholics when they flow into verse 26 is what the context is actually saying. In verse 22, Jesus says, but I, and he uses the pronoun there, 
And now every time you see this noun brother, he is using an articular construction, the brother. So he says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with the brother, the brother of him, as some manuscripts would read it, shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to the brother of him, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, the first thing that we would have to ask, and you'll notice he keeps referring to the brother. He says in verse 23, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that the brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first to be reconciled to the brother of you and then come and present your offering. Now, the construction, the brother, grammatically, by using the article, we're not talking about a brother. We're talking about a specific brother, a specific brother that you need to be reconciled with if you're going to escape eternal fire. Now, the brother is Jesus Christ. He's the brother who's the one who is there talking to them. He's their brother. He's Jewish. And this is, remember, him presenting himself as king of the Jews. So he's basically saying, you need to realize you need to be reconciled to me. Then he says, verse 25, make friends quickly with your opponent at law, with the opponent, and there's another articular construction, at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent, the opponent, may not hand you over to the judge. So here's what I would conclude from this grammatically. There is some specific brother who's been offended. There's been a brother who's been offended. And this particular brother needs to have this resolved because until it is resolved, he's the opponent of the law, and the person who isn't resolving this is the opponent of the brother who is in regard to the law, and that one who's the brother who is the opponent because the law has been broken is in a position to hand you over to the judge. That's the grammar of what's described here. Now, we believe, I believe, not just me, but others as well, that the brother and the opponent are one person, Jesus Christ. In other words, what Christ is saying here, you're guilty. You're guilty. You've offended me. You're angry with me. You think little of me. And you don't have knowledge of who I am. You're making fun of who I am. In fact, you're calling me good for nothing. You're even getting to the point where you'll call me a fool. I'm the brother who's come here. And then I want you to notice how the section ends. Go over to chapter 7 and verse 21. Chapter 7 and verse 21. Because this whole sermon on the mount is all connected together. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. Yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. The rain fell 
And the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was the fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority, not like their scribes. So here's what he's teaching in this context. I'm your brother. I'm the brother of you. I'm the savior. I'm the Messiah. I'm the brother of Jewish people. I've come here and you have offended me. In fact, you're not only offending me, you're talking down to me. Do you understand you're guilty of murder, what you're doing? And they would be guilty of murder when they would nail him to a cross, carrying it out that way. So what he basically says to them, I'm the one who's taking the law, and I'm going to nail that law to the cross so that you no longer have any responsibility of the law, but you do have a responsibility to be reconciled to me. I'm the brother who's going to take care of the law issue. You do have a responsibility to be reconciled to me. And if you are not reconciled to me, before you get before the judge, which would be the judgment of God, the text says, I say to you, you will go into this place, thrown into this place. You'll not come out of it until you've paid up the last cent, and you won't be able to do that you won't be able to resolve this because you have rejected the one who has offered you the way of escape. You have rejected the one who's offered you grace. You are not willing to accept me as the one who's taken care of the law issue for you and you refuse to come to me. You're not going to get out of there. This has nothing to do with establishing a purgatory, nothing to do with this whatsoever. It's a warning. It's a warning text, and that's the way he ends this thing. Many of you are going to get before me in that day and say, well, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. You'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Well, you're not going to depart from him and then go someplace and then have a bunch of people carry on a service and light candles and give money to the church and get you out of that place. It isn't going to work that way. This is a serious warning that he's giving to Jewish people. So that's Matthew 5.26. Now, the third passage they allude to, we've already kind of handled this one, but it's Matthew 12, 32. Matthew 12, 32. And in Matthew 12, 32, we read, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now, what Jesus is talking about here, verse 31, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he says that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. So Catholics take the position that that implies that there is a possibility that some sins could be forgiven once one leaves the world. Now, the blasphemy of the Spirit of God, as we went over last time we were together on this point, is Jesus Christ had to be physically here on earth doing these miracles. You'll notice in the text, verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So what they were doing is they were seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, who's establishing himself as the God, Savior, Messiah, King, by these miracles. And these religious leaders were basically saying, He's doing that by the power of Satan. That's what they were alleging about the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was doing that by the power of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So he basically says, you look at me when I'm physically here on earth, and you see me do these miracles, and you claim 
that I'm doing this by the power of Satan rather than the power of the Spirit of God, it will not be forgiven you. It has nothing to do with not being forgiven you after you're dead. It has to do with you're not going to be forgiven of this while you're alive. You have no chance whatsoever. You cross that line of getting into a right relationship with God, and then when you're dead, you leave this world and you go into eternity. It has nothing to do with a place called purgatory whatsoever. It's just that's been invented by, as we pointed out last time, men. Now, the fourth text that's used is 1 Corinthians 3. Let's start at verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Catholics take the position that this is a temporary purification punishment place after death. It has nothing to do with it. It's the Bema Seat judgment. Once a person has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they start the process of building something on their lives, either wood, hay, stubble, or gold, precious metal, and silver. They can build upon their faith in Jesus Christ things that are God-honoring or not God-honoring. At the Bema Seat judgment, if they built upon their faith in Jesus Christ, when they are judged, they're going to receive rewards based on how they lived and governed themselves. If they didn't, they're going to lose rewards and their works are going to be burned up. It has, again, nothing to do with purgatory. There's not anything in here about purgatory. So we reject purgatory, and there are those that are very confused on this point. J. Oliver Buswell said that he heard that more than one supposed fundamental minister say that Christians were so sinful in their behavior that it's only logical that there be a time of purification after death before they entered heaven. But I want you well cemented and grounded in this theological point. There's not one hint in the Bible that the moment a person leaves their body and dies, they get another chance. There's no hint in the scriptures of that at all. So somebody that's just emotionally thinking this or feeling this or expressing this or they're sentimental about someone that they're hoping they'll get some, they can hope all they want. There's nothing in the scriptures, not one part of scripture would indicate they're going to get another chance once they leave this world. Now's the time they have opportunities to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and get serious about the word of God. Once they leave this body, it's over. It's over. They're going to one or two places. Now, we reject purgatory for four reasons. First of all, because purgatory is nowhere taught in the Bible. As I just mentioned, there's not one hint anywhere in the Bible that once one leaves the world, they go to a place where they get a second chance. Clearly, that concept comes from sentimentalists who want to feel that about people that they love who've died. They want to have a feeling about this, but there's no hint that that is a reality. Martin Luther, who at one time had been a Catholic, said, as for purgatory, no place in scriptures makes mention thereof, neither must we in any way allow it, for it darkens and undervalues the grace, benefits, and merits of our blessed, sweet Savior, Christ Jesus. So the first reason we reject purgatory is there's no place in the Bible where it's taught, the second reason we reject it is because purgatory denies the sufficiency of Christ's suffering and cross work. Now, shortly before Jesus was crucified, he prayed to his father and said that he had accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, it's finished. 
Well, what that means when he cries out, it's finished, what that means is the sin case is fully paid for and met by me at this moment on the cross. That's what it means. So there's no other place where someone can go to deal with sin issues. You are only in one place where the sin issue is resolved. That's at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he cries out, it's finished, there's the spot where it's finished. You don't finish it. A person who dies doesn't go someplace and finish up the sin case. It's finished at the cross of Christ. So a place of purgatory basically denies the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Purgatory directly contradicts the Bible that teaches when one leaves the body, one goes directly to heaven or hell. In Hebrews 9.27, makes it clear that it's appointed unto man to die and then the judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Absent from the body, present in the Lord. Not absent from the body. Go to a place where you hold up for a while until it's determined where you're going to go. If you're a believer in Christ, you leave the body with the Lord. Paul said that when he died, he was going to depart to be with Christ. He never had the thought in his mind, I'm going to depart and go to some limbo place where I'm going to hang out for a while. He said, I'm looking to depart to go to be with Christ. When the thief was hanging on the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he said, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Well, if ever there's a guy that should serve some time in a place trying to make amends for sin, it'd be a thief hanging on the cross who's in the last seconds of his life turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. You would think he would say, well now, because of the lifestyle you've led, you're going to have to go to this place and spend some time there seeing if you can work out some deal. He said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And then, of course, we spent a great deal of time in that text of Luke 16, where you have the rich man and Lazarus dies. And what we learn from that passage is, the rich man who dies is immediately in Hades, and he's in torment and torture and pain. And Lazarus, who dies, is immediately at Abraham's bosom, and he's being comforted and encouraged and exhorted and experiencing the wonderful bliss of eternity. So when you stack purgatory up against direct statements that are found in the word of God, what we would conclude is purgatory directly contradicts what the Bible actually teaches. Now the fourth reason we reject purgatory is purgatory is a works-based merit system of going to heaven. It's not a faith-based grace system of going to heaven. Purgatory is a works-based merit system of going to heaven. It is not a faith-based grace system of going to heaven. It is stressed in many passages that the matter of going to heaven has nothing to do with works. The matter of going to hell has everything to do with works. In Romans 4, 5, we read, But to the one who does no works at all, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You believe in the Lord, did no good works at all. Your faith is counted as righteousness. In Romans eleven six, if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So the Bible makes it clear that works or merit have nothing to do with somebody going to heaven. Purgatory is basically a statement that 
heaven is merited. It's a merit thing. That's how you get out of purgatory, by some merit system, which is invented by men. And in Revelation 20, 13 to 15, works have nothing to do with going to hell because it says, in fact, let's go to that text in Revelation 20. Let's just take a second and go over there and look at that. And there's no mention here whatsoever of works at all. What we read in Revelation 20, 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the works books establish the violation of the law, the guilt and sin of the person. If their name is not in the book of life, they're thrown into the lake of fire. So the basis of going into heaven was you had to have your name in the book of life. How do you get your name in the book of life? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's established earlier in the book of Revelation. So the issue of going to heaven is a faith issue. The issue of going to hell is a works issue. Purgatory tries to put that all together. Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer discussed the lost state of man's condition in Ephesians 2.12, and he said, No more decisive terms could be employed than these which describe men as being without Christ, without promise, without God, and without hope. There's just no such place as purgatory. I just want you to be dogmatic on that point. I want you to... When you have opportunities, and I don't know how many opportunities you will have on this, but when you have these opportunities, you take a dogmatic stand when you're talking to people. If you leave this world, if you leave your body without Jesus Christ, you're not going to get a second chance. You have no hope, no hope of escaping hell, no hope of escaping fire. In fact, that will be your destiny. There's no place in the Bible that gives any hope for someone who's rejected Jesus Christ. For the one who's accepted Jesus Christ, man, oh man, we're not appointed to wrath. We're set free from all of it. We're set free from the law. We're set free from sin. We're set free from guilt. But the person who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to go to that place. Well, I told you we weren't going to make it, and we didn't. Our time is gone, and we still have a couple of final issues that I want to address. I want to address the question of where is hell located? So when we are back with you, we're going to address that. Where is hell located? I want to address something a little bit about annihilation because there are a lot of people that say you just are annihilated, go into oblivion. And then I want to also conclude the study by analyzing how the history of the church has always taught this matter of going to eternal fire, going to hell. And so we're not the ones that have come up with this new novel study. This has been around for a long, long time. Well, we look forward to seeing you on Sunday. We have a great Lord's Day plan for you on Sunday. We're going to have communion on Sunday. We're going to handle some interesting verses in Colossians. We'll look forward to seeing you. Good night. The Lord bless you.